I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Desiree Gazetta. And we love to watch. We love to watch knows there's no wrong way to make a family. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me on. We love to watch. We're exclusively a, a 30 Rock quote generator. And <laughs> sometimes we talk about movies. Usually we pick a theme. And then we do – well, this time we did that too. Uh, and then we pick movies around that theme over the course of the month. But not this month. This month we picked a theme. And then we asked our guests to pick movies that qualify for that theme. And we're doing Ladies Fright Night Part 2 – where uh, we asked members of a film group called Ladies Who Dissolve to pick movies that they wanted to discuss on our show. Uh, and the only criteria being they needed to be a horror film directed by a woman. And this week we have uh, Desiree. Desiree, welcome to the show. Please introduce yourself to our audience and let us know what movie you picked and why. So I'm Desiree Gazetta. I'm a freelance writer and I'm also a huge horror film fanatic. I picked the movie Near Dark, which was made in 1987, directed by Catherine Bigelow. And she also wrote the script with her partner, Eric Red. It's a movie that stars Adrian Pazdar as a cowboy <laughs> who gets bit by a vampire played by Jenny Wright and has the more rather grungy adventure with his new vampire family. Um, it's a hybrid horror film, Western film, because all movies are Westerns, and it's just, just <laughs> really, I love it because it's, it's, it's grungy, basically. It is super grungy. I thought you picked it because you were, like, trying to challenge our audience to find a way to watch it. <laughs> Um, I didn't realize that it was so difficult to find. I, I know. Mean, I, I can't even find my own copy, and I have a copy of it. I don't know where it is, but it it's, seems to be basically out of print, which is really, really sad. Yeah, it's kind of – it's crazy. Um, I had bought the um, the Blu-ray a couple years ago. And side note, I won't even necessarily recommend that uh, just because they – whatever – well, so whatever studio put out the Blu-ray not only tried to do it to capitalize on – the Twilight, uh, <laughs> Twi Twilight fans, because if you see the Blu-ray cover, if you haven't, Google it. It looks like uh, a like a Twilight movie. That's how they like reformat it. It's one of the worst cover arts of all time. Uh, which and um, and then it went out of print almost right after. And whoever put that little work into marketing it also put that little work into the transfer. Because the Blu-ray looks like not something that's actually been remastered for HD, but like when they do the upreses on DVDs, because it kind of looks like garbage, which sucks. Because not only is, is it really like noisy, really uh, noisy, like when it's black and like uh, blacks on the screen look like they're like pixelated and nothing looks that clear. And uh, I don't know what these these numbers mean because I'm definitely not a tech person, but most Blu-rays play at like 35 MPS. If you hit pause, there's like a thing at the bottom, bits per sec maybe. I don't know what it means. Megapixels per bits? Who knows? But this one plays at like 12 and DVDs play at like 6 to 7. So kind of gives you a sense of like which sucks because it's such a gorgeous movie and not only is there not a way to watch it streaming except peter i'm sure will share his story of how he watched it but yeah it just feels like uh you know a big director 
um, one of the best vampire movies of all time, and like it's completely out of print, and no one ever bothered to get a good version of it. It's it's just uh, excuse the pun, screaming for a Scream Factory release. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I I'm imagining that there's some sort of. Uh backroom deal holding this up because there's I'm imagining maybe someone uh, wanted to make a remake and then that never happened so that actually held up the release of this maybe I don't know there has to be something going on it was sort of like for a period of time you couldn't get like Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead on Blu-ray. I think now they're. I think now they're Twilight Time or a couple of those companies have have Blu-rays out now. No, you but. still. They did that with uh, Day. You still can't get Dawn anywhere. Really? I thought yeah. they made the George Romero box set Arrow or one of those guys. Yeah, but that's with Season of the Witch and like that doesn't doesn't have Dawn of the Dead. Uh, v- vanilla. There's, there's always al- vanilla. there's always vanilla. There's always chocolate. There's always Neapolitan. The that trilogy. <laughs> Is all included. Um, so dumb. Anyways, but anyways, but yeah, I think there's there's got to be something in the back in the back uh, back uh, annals of uh, film banality that uh, dictates why this movie isn't on Blu-ray, despite the fact that far far more obscure movies have gotten loving releases by Scream Factory and Arrow and such. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I thought it was going to be something that if I spent the, you know, the requisite 10, 15 minutes digging around the, uh, the, the subhuman basements of, uh, Blu-ray forums, um, I could, <laughs> I could find out <laughs> and, uh, no, um, those, those, those nerds failed me yet again. So, <laughs> but we're going to get more into it. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Um, I've kind of considered it like my, even when I was like 20, I had like a personal headcanon for like the best vampire movies. And, uh, it definitely is a headcanon for someone who's 20 because it's like near dark blade an interview with a vampire. And I still love all those movies, but there's, there's more good ones. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, so I'm psyched that you brought this on the show, Desiree. Thank you so much. Uh, can't wait to talk about it. Uh, but before we do that. Uh, we're going to do – we're kind of on a schedule tonight so that we can't uh, meander off uh, incessantly. I'm sure all of our fans are disappointed by that. <laughs> Someone said at home, like, I've been waiting for three and a half years for them to have something else to do after the podcast so they can get to the point. But um, we're going to do a quick Spooktober recap, maybe just list movies. But before we do that, uh, Desiree uh, – what what as a horror fan what is your kind of do you do any kind of spooktober stuff are there some movies that you've seen recently you really are pumped about want to talk about or uh stuff that you're still planning to watch this spooktober well i actually um because i'm such a horror film fan it's spooktober is all year for me i watch (laughs) horror all the time if a movie comes out no matter how bad the reviews are i'll go see it just to you know just to see it um, actually, yeah. this this weekend, besides revisiting Near Dark, I had never gotten around to watching the Happy Death Day to You movies. So oh, I watched they're so them good! Back, back, yeah, they were great. Yeah, I was uh, really impressed, at, uh, partly by how funny they were, but just it, they were so self assured. Yeah, and the second one, like it on paper, feels like oh, don't do that with your movie, and it works <laughs> really, really well. Like it seems like it's going to be stupid. And it works fantastically. Then you get to that little tag at the end of the credits, and I just stood up it from my couch and said, "Oh, I can't believe you're so mean that you did that." And so I can't. I don't know if they're doing a third one, but if they do, I'm all for it. So yeah, agreed. Uh, Peter, have you seen the second one yet? I know it's on your Spooktober list. 
Uh, no, but yeah, it's in my, uh, I'm going to get to it this, this month. Um, it's, uh, the first one was one of those big surprises because, uh, the, the trailer was simultaneously a very good trailer, but also a trailer that I, I think it did its best as it could to sell what the movie is, but the movie's like real charm is in the small moments and yeah. how they, they make those characters make sense. And that's really hard to do in a trailer. So instead it just looked like a glossy, silly, like, you know, slasher movie, which isn't really my, my bag. Um, uh, generally speaking. And then I saw it and I like loved it. Like it was like one of the most fun times I've had watching horror movies in a long time. So yeah, we should yeah, do it in February. Yeah, we were talking about doing uh, Groundhog Day month Months, with yeah. uh, all the all the similar sort of uh, reset day movies, and we could do it. We could do a double episode with, with yeah. both of those. So. Yeah, we should. Uh, what else did you get around to watching, or uh, are still planning to watch? Well, on, actually, I, I, on part of your year long adventure through horror films. <laughs> I, well, I've seen. I've gone out and seen Midsummer twice because I had to see the oh. director's cut. And then, how was the director's cut? How was it? It was yeah. okay. I, I actually okay. preferred the theatrical cut because I don't want to give anything away, but the ending changes, um, the color of the ending changes with the added scenes in the in the director's hmm. cut. Whereas I like, I just like the feel of it better without those extra scenes. Okay. Uh, but it's still, it was still really engrossing. It's not like the added stuff. You know, all of a sudden I got bored out of nowhere. I, I did enjoy it quite a bit. Um, I also recently went to a few films at Beyond Fest, which is a Indian horror film festival in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Um, and I saw Parasite, which not quite a horror film. We were, we were talking kind of social horror, but it, it's Bong Joon-ho, and it's wonderful. Um, and then we also saw... Little Monsters, which I think is on Hulu now. It's with Lupita Nyong'o, and it's set in Australia. It's a zombie film. It's really funny. And The Lodge, which is the new film from the people who brought you Goodnight Mommy. Um, oh, not yeah. Quite, not quite as scary as Goodnight Mommy was to me, but it's really atmospheric, and I think it's worth a look. Yeah, I will definitely be checking that out. Yeah, some of those are like my most anticipated movies of the year along with like uh the lighthouse and stuff so yeah i'm 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 bummed that's not coming out um at least where i am at until november 7th because i really wanted to make a special spooktober (laughs) halloween uh theater edition but um I guess I'll just see it immediately when it comes out on the seventh. <laughs> yeah, I, I wait. Hold on, I need to double check that too because I was just banking on it coming out in four days. I need to know yeah. when this thing, if this thing is actually coming to where I live. Uh, I mean, I you we both live in major cities, so maybe your major city will get more lucky than my major city. Uh, my major city tends to get uh, shit on by the fact that it's so close to LA. Uh, movies will release in LA and Chicago and stuff, but skip right over San Diego. It's very annoying. Just drive the print like a couple hours south, all right? That's why the song's called I Love L.A. and not I Love San Diego, Peter. (laughs) Um, But people walk in San Diego, I've heard. So you couldn't sing that song about (sighs) I don't even... People walk in... There's a song? There's a song called Nobody Walks in L.A. Oh, sorry. It's called Walking in L.A. Yeah, it's called Walking in L.A., but the song states... Hey, as a Smash Mouth fan, the only walking I do is on the sun, Peter. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, Tesra, if you like, we can uh, yeah. vote Aaron out of this podcast. And, uh... That's fine. Desiree's like, actually, I have to catch a flight. <laughs> In the morning, I gotta get going. Um, all right. Well, uh, anything else before uh, Peter and I go through ours quickly? Oh no, go right ahead. All right. I have to catch a flight to a country where no one speaks English because no you guys have ruined English for me. <laughs> yeah. uh, very sorry. Uh, right. So I'll I'll go through mine very quickly. Um, I'm up to 22 new movies. Yeah, that's disgusting. 25, 25 uh, total. 25 still alive. 25 total. Uh, so, really quick, since last time we all gathered in our meeting space, I watched Satan Slaves. Scariest movie I've seen so far this month. Uh, I love that movie. Dolls, most Stewie Gordy movie I've seen this month. <laughs> Hellraiser Bloodline, better than I thought movie I saw this month, but still not very good. Um, but I figured I had to. I, I really lo- was surprised how much I liked 2 and 3, so I figured I'd give Bloodline a chance. Um, Hellfast, most not an anthology movie as I was led to believe by one review on Letterboxd, but still pretty. If you just want a basic slasher movie, all of the 80s with a cool twist, Hellfast is fine. Uh, prettiest movie I've seen this month, Crimson Peak. Uh, uh, most surprising movie based on Rotten Tomatoes, Escape Room. Um, uh, best sequel to the movie Phantasm I saw this month, Phantasm 2. Um, (laughs) and finally, actually, like, my, I, I hate saying this, but like, I mean, I don't know if it's my favorite I've seen this month, but definitely the movie I feel like I'm gonna watch the most after this in a short period of time that really came out of nowhere that I want to plant on for two minutes and talk about is Dude Bro Party Massacre 3, which was something I passed over on Shudder a million times because who wants to fucking see a movie called Dude Bro Party Massacre 3? I assumed there was a one and two. I didn't realize what it was. Instead of, like, it is a, if you're familiar with the Astron 6 films, like Father's Day or The Editor or something like that, it is something that does that without, like, I think without as much weird stuff and just does, like, a fake 80s slasher movie of a series that obviously didn't exist that, like, the the the... The twist of it is at the beginning that, like, this movie was thought lost forever. Someone recorded it off a local TV station at four in the main and the four in the morning 15 years ago, and they found it, and that's how you're watching it now. So, uh, you know, and then it kind of, in that Astron 6 way, like, both sends up the genre specifically about, like, the idea of, like, uh, toxic masculinity in, like, um, 80 slasher movies, but also then makes a really fucking funny and gory movie in the process. Uh, again, super surprised, did not realize what it was. I'm glad, thanks to whoever on Letterboxd and uh, Horrors of the Dissolve that had mentioned how surprising this was, but uh, I absolutely love this movie. And if you've been turned off by the name and just seeing it on Shudder, uh, know that the makers of this movie uh, named it that on very much on purpose. <laughs> um, they also know what a dumb name it is, and it is not like a celebration of of the worst like masculinity in horror films, but it is a uh, very funny uh, 
satire about it with just being a and then also just a like a parody of like those sort of movies the cuts in them the it even has like the because it was taped off tv like commercials that didn't fully get edited out from the 80s and stuff like fake commercials so it's really really good uh could not recommend it high enough yeah, I'm really glad that you uh, dove into that because I would have never uh, watched that movie because of the title and the cover and everything. Um, and weirdly, so Patton Oswalt's in it. Greg S- uh, Sestero from The Room is in it. Andrew WK's in it. And the weirdest one of all, Larry King's in it. <laughs> That's very weird. He um, gets, gets killed very quickly. Uh, I never watched, so I don't know if you ever heard of Five Second Films. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's all those people that made this. Oh, okay. It's a bit more of a I never, I Patton was super okay. into those guys. Yeah, so... He used to boost them a lot. So that... And I guess Larry King was on a few of those, which explains why he's in there. I've ne- I may have seen, like, if you showed me one that went viral on the internet on YouTube 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I may know what it is, but I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Cool. That sounds fun, Aaron. Um, so I'm at 12. Uh, the first is People Under the Stairs. 12, like, t- uh, this I'm week? I'm at 12, so I've watched, uh... Like, the last couple days? Or, like... Like, uh, five since oh. the last time. Oh, okay. Seems low. Yeah, Aaron. It is low. <laughs> I told you before the month started, this is not gonna be a good year for me. But I watched People Under the Stairs. Great. Uh, which is Wes Craven's best movie. And, uh, a total shocker. And I... It's... Almost, it's like almost a perfect, perfect movie. I yeah. think the last like 10, 15 minutes um, are a little repetitive of one another and there's too much like windy twisty going on where it could have been cleaner. But other than that, like the characters are all super interesting. The set design is insane. It's a fascinating movie with great characters, great performances. It's funny. It's gory. Its tone isn't something you see that often. Like it's just such a, a wonderful movie about a about it's about the black community and it's about the times we live in now where gentrification is used as a tool of racist oppression and like it's it's a uh, very much social horror that that uh i think is similar to society similar to get out just has so much teeth to it and, and uh because of that it makes it so much more interesting than just like um uh you know a spook a blast like let's throw a bunch of crazy stuff at your face yeah um your rules and the next is and the screaming starts. And I told Aaron this, but so I bought one of those like, you know, fancy horror people, Blu-rays, full restoration of this movie that uh, this uh, amicus uh, movie. And I like really enjoyed the movie. Gave it four stars, reviewed it on Letterboxd as the credits were rolling. Then I went over to Special Features, and there's a four-minute feature of just this grumpy, monotone British man just talking about how much he fucking hates the movie. (laughs) And it's the funniest fucking thing I've ever... I was laughing so hard, because I went from, like, pure joy about this movie to this, like, very grumpy, very old British guy talking about how the movie is deeply, deeply regressive of the Hammer horror era and you can tell that the filmmakers were completely lost when they were putting this thing together i was like why did you put this on the blu-ray it's just a grumpy old fuck i bought it because i like the movie <laughs> uh but it's still it made me laugh a lot so uh thank you for putting it on the blu-ray uh next one was tigers are not afraid um Best thing I've watched this month, probably movie. It's my front runner for movie of the year right now. Really? It's so it's so fucking good. Man, I wanted um, to like that more than I did. I I mean, I liked it like three and a half stars, but I uh, yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, it, I was everything surprised. it was doing was working for me. All right. The magical realism of it, just blending with the horror to kind of prove this overall point. I don't think it overstayed its welcome by a minute. Like, it's just a it's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. Just as good as people told me it was. Um, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Uh, I haven't seen Prom Night 1. I understand it's kind of a straight-ahead slasher. But uh, this one is uh, feels like if, you know, one of the Friday the 13th movies bombed and they were like, we should make a Lady Freddy. And... Because it's not a slasher movie. It's like a psycho. It's like not. It's like a psychosexual, uh, campy '80s movie about women relationships, but also like a a demon is haunting a high school and kids are getting picked off one by one. Like it's funny and mean and campy, and it and it feels very much like Blood Diner or you know uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Um, yeah, I, I, I really recommend this movie. It's, it's, uh, one of the more fun things I've watched this month. And then the last one, arguably as weird as, uh, Lou's in its own way, um, Knife and Heart. So this is directed by, what's his name? Sorry. I know his last name's Gonzalez. Uh, Yan Gonzalez. Um, and it's a movie, a horror movie that takes place in, um, on, uh, sort of a, a gay porn production studio and but it, it's riff, it's basically like a giallo riff but also it's a world where seemingly only lgbt people exist <laughs> and the music is awesome it's by uh, yan gonzalez's brother uh who is also known as uh, m83 and uh, it's on it's on shutter right now and it's just dripping with style but it's it's a movie that approaches all of its topics in in a in a way that like you would never quite expect. It's also like deeply unabashedly gay and I love it for that. Like it's 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 like a it's a movie that like really revels in the fact that it's it's it is about a specific community and it's not shy about that. Yeah, it's it's definitely something to check out uh especially if you need something really stylish and and kind of juicy. Uh yeah, it's on my list for this uh Spooktober. I haven't gotten to it yet, but uh Kind of feels like a, a last week marathon type, type movie. <laughs> if you're like sick of every other type of movie, this this doesn't feel like anything. Like it fe- it feels like a Giallo riff in some sense, but in another sense, like it doesn't feel like Giallo at all. Yeah, so far, like I was just uh, texting you, Peter, because this is all we talk about through text too. Is that like I've w- I've watched a lot of movies, but like last year at this time when I was probably in the same range, I felt like okay, <laughs> like I've watched a lot of movies, and I don't know if it's just you know. Peter and I have talked so much uh, on Spooktober's past about, like, if you're going to do something crazy, like, just try to watch horror movies like a lunatic for for a month. Like, it's important to pick a good mix. And uh, last year, I guess my mix wasn't as good, but uh, that I felt a little more burnout. But I think also just getting lucky with, like, you know, typically, I think by this point, having seen this many movies, we have a lot more movies to report that, like, didn't work for us. And, like, my lowest rated movie so far out of 22 is two three-star movies. One of those is called Hell Razor Bloodline, which was, again, it was fine. <laughs> um, I got to see Adam Scott uh, be a uh, 17th century villain before being murdered um, by a demon queen. And, uh, and Squirm, which is, like, 
also fine. Like a lot of worm uh, gross effects and stuff like that. I think the problem comes when you get too many squirms and Hellraiser bloodlines that you're like, okay. But when it's like mixed with so many great movies I've seen, yeah, this is this is a good one so far. We'll see how it how it ends up. <laughs> see, see I think I was more going. disciplined. I mean, I'm I'm watching a lot less than I did last year, but I I, I feel like I was more disciplined to save stuff for Spooktober. Um, Whereas some years, Spooktober can be more of like a receptacle for stuff that I wasn't that excited to watch in the first place, which just takes a lot of a lot more patience out of your your, your uh, coffers. It takes a lot more uh, out of you, I think, when you like weren't that excited to see something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, well, I should see it. You know, like I should see it is the sign that like something is, you know, it might surprise you, but it's probably going to be like a little bit of an ordeal for the first bit some of it's a little uh spooktober can be packed with all those movies that like well i don't want to waste like a night of like just a normal july night to watch this movie that i think isn't going to be that good but what if i save it for spooktober (laughs) then it won't matter uh and then you end up with like a lot of movies you weren't excited to see so yeah i think it's a good point uh but anyways uh we have a we have a spooky movie to talk about featuring maybe bill paxton's best performance um peter yeah i'd say i'd put it there i i think for a not that great of an actor he gives a lot of iconic performances in this one but we're gonna talk more about it so maybe he is a great actor he is a great well we debated that at our predator 2 episode many many years ago but (laughs) uh this is definitely in the camp of great actor peter desiree are you guys ready to talk more about near dark absolutely Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry. Sunshine on the water looks so lovely. You are alternate taglines. Alternate taglines. Exactly like the movie Twilight. Exactly. Yeah. Did you work at the marketing department of whatever fucking place? Uh, (laughs) I don't want to make fun of Twilight because it definitely has its time and space. But, like, I can't think of two movies that are more diametrically uh, opposed. Well, fun fact, Peter. Did you know that Platinum Dunes uh, was going to remake this movie? In, sure did. Uh, in 2006, and they decided to not pursue it because they were worried it was too similar to the Twilight books, which had just gotten huge. Yes, I did, uh, which I also <coughs> contribute part of my theory to why this movie uh, this movie is probably out of print. There's, I feel like some part of that remake shuffle uh, hurt this movie's ability to stay on DVD shelves. Yeah, maybe, but like you said, so much stuff has been released. Anyways, we got to get to the movie, so I'll do a quick plot recap. So, yeah, it takes place in uh, the Pacific Northwest, a vampire named Edward. Um, That's all I know about Twilight. Um, They glitter. They play baseball in the daylight. I don't know. I only know it from memes. Um, uh, Just because I haven't seen them. Although, I did hear, I'm almost tempted to watch the last one because I heard it's uh, a lot of fun. But, anyway... Near Dark is about a cowboy, and he gets out of a bar. It's closing time. It must be way past closing time because the sun's about to come up. And he is like, hey, uh, he meets a, a lady named May, and he's like, let's 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 leave together. 
as they're driving, she's kind of talking. She's looking at the stars. She's talking about how she's going to be around to see the stars in a million years. Um, he's like, whatever. Uh, let's kiss or something. And instead, she bites him and runs away. And he, uh, all of a sudden, the sun comes up and he starts to uh, get all dusty and smoky. And he kind of starts running to his uh, dad and sister. And before he's able to get to them, a uh, motorhome speeds in and uh, puts him in there. And you find out that May is a vampire. And she is kind of with this family of other vampires. Uh, kind of this makeshift family, including uh, some really great uh, actors like Bill Paxton and Lance Hendrickson and Jeanette Goldstein um, and uh, Joshua John Miller. Uh, and they are... Uh, they're like, hey, you know, you're, you're kind of tell him what happened. He, he doesn't really believe that he's turned into a vampire. Uh, so he kind of escapes through them, is about to go on a bus back, but then finally kind of accepts his faith and feeds off of May. And then he gets a quick training on the life of a vampire where they never say vampire, even though I've said it more times in this recap that's even like hinted at in the movie. But they're just kind of explaining what they do to survive while also kind of getting to know their family dynamics. So they show kind of a montage of them, like, picking off hitchhikers and uh, Homer, who's like, was a kid when he was turned into a vampire, playing dead and tricking someone to helping him and then biting him. And at the end of that night, they kind of – but um, but uh, but Caleb is not able to go through with it and ends up feeding off of May again uh, They after she kills someone. So they all go back to this bar and uh, the bartender, they're kind of being rude and violent. And eventually they kind of uh, are like, hey, just to let you know, we're fucking with you guys because you're all going to die. They end up killing almost everyone in the bar except the one person that uh, Caleb is supposed to kill who gets away. Uh, And then they set fire to the bar. They end up back at a hotel room. Uh, Meanwhile, the... Uh, Caleb's dad and sister continue to pursue them across the country, uh, but the guy that Caleb uh, did refuse to kill and got away, he went to the police. They find him in the hotel room. They kind of do a shootout uh, in this in this motel room, which is great because while the bullets don't hit hurt the vampires, the holes in the wind the 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 holes in the walls that burst in sunlight do. Uh, so they eventually uh, Caleb goes runs to the car. Uh, the van uh, gets the van, takes them with him. Um, he then ends up at a kind of a, another motel where Homer meets uh, Caleb's younger sister and is trying to turn her into a vampire so that he can have a friend his quote unquote own age. Caleb doesn't like this. He eventually breaks free with them. They discover a cure for vampirism, which is injecting a fresh non-vampiritic blood into them. Uh, meanwhile, the vampire clan has decided that uh, Caleb needs to die for abandoning their family. May tries to go there and uh, talk to him about it. And he's like, no, I'm good not being a vampire, but I will go to a showdown. So he goes, he rides a horse into town, has a showdown with especially uh, Bill Paxton's uh, character. But eventually uh, uh Everyone dies except for uh, May and Caleb, and the implication is that uh, May will get cured as well. And they all live happily ever after. So that is a very, very quick recap of of Near Dark. 
but uh, really, you know, this is a movie where plot is important, but the the part of the movie that you're really supposed to kind of be engaged with is the, as Desiree mentioned, kind of the Western style and um, and this kind of like really deconstructed vampire mythos where it is uh, – not referring to them as vampires. It's taking out all of the superfluous lore. Um, do they even have teeth? No, they don't have fangs. They don't I mean, have they fangs. Have, sorry, they do have teeth. They have yeah. teeth. Yeah, they have teeth. No. They don't have fangs. Um, uh, that'd be funny if they were all just gummy. Well, even uh, Lance Henderson's character Jesse, his like gun, his revolver that he uses has a cross on it that he holds, which is like a really so. It's really like they're clearly vampires because they're feeding on blood. Um, and then they uh, burn by sunlight. And that's uh, that's basically like it. And it's more about, again, the kind of sweaty, uh, villainous Western setting. And um, and all of How the bad great... do you think that truck smells? Oh, my God. Everyone's this is a smelly movie. I guess <laughs> it starts with a cowboy who just probably got straight off the job and then went to, you know, go drink at a bar all night. Yeah. And then he becomes a vampire, and then he gets picked up before he can go home and clean himself. And then he has to proceed to be a vampire. Like, he's probably the stinkiest boy. As we know, vamp- when, when you die and become a vampire, not only do you always look the way you look, but you always smell the way that you smelt when you stopped living. So Absolutely. That's why it's always important to take a bath before you become a vampire. If not, you stink for eternity. Yeah, man. I just, I, I just, it, it, the idea that you're just locked in has always been the thing that scared me about the vampire mythos. There's a, I, I'm not a big fan of True Blood, like where it went, but there's this episode with uh, Stephen Root where he's talking about the pain of, uh, he's talking about the pain of being like a middle aged kind of uh, uh, flubby, um, like you know guy with glasses who became a vampire and he's like well yeah i mean people didn't look at me before and they don't really want to look at me now like yeah. it didn't make me have some sort of sexy sexy allure i didn't have and homer in this movie uh yeah. iconifies that that thing where homer is locked in as a kid but he's like a grumpy old asshole old man stuck in a 13 year old's body yeah it's uh and that's obviously also well portrayed in Interview with a Vampire by Kirsten Dunst's character, too, is like, uh, you know, she was rightfully, I think, nominated for Academy Award where she'd like that. That scene is still burned into my head where she's like yelling at Brad Pitt and uh, Tom Cruise for like maybe just Brad Pitt. It's been a while since I've seen it. Like of like forcing her into this eternity of like childhood. Um so, so yeah, so let's let's before we dive into all that cuz there is a lot to talk about. Uh let's talk about the first time we ran into this movie. So, uh really quick, I uh thankfully uh was this movie was never on my radar until um uh some friends in college, some friends I used to work at a video store with were psyched that it was coming out on DVD and like this uh big back when they used to do two, big two disc special editions of of movies like that and uh they were just like it's one of the best vampire movies ever you'll love it and i went to an early fledging imdb and i remember i used to go and look at quotes of movies before i saw them because i was young and that's what i did before i could watch a movie and there was a quote the that stood out for me um that is one of my still one of my favorites in the movie it's the uh, we keep odd hours which 
was such a seeing it on like I'm like that's such a funny way to explain that you're a vampire to someone like just we keep odd hours and that was enough as dumb as it sounds for me to go oh yeah I need to see this movie and I loved it it just was again just you know it was probably one of the first like deconstruction or like minimalist uh horror movies i had seen where uh seeing it at such a young age where everything is like vampire movies are dracula and all of the gothic horror components this idea of like these almost like cursed vampires who like continue to exist but aren't necessarily thrilled with existence but like they're not living in a life of luxury, but just trying to like get by on a town to town basis was just so unlike anything I'd ever seen at that point. Desiree, why'd you bring this uh, movie to the show? I know you discussed it a bit, but um, is what was last time? What was the first time you were exposed to this? The first time I was exposed to it, I went to see it in the theater in 1987 when it came <laughs> Hell out. Hell yeah, because <laughs> I'm old. And um, you know, the do you last think it looked better than my Flix Fling stream of it uh, on my TV with uh, the big? fucking blocky black cubes of uh of darkness it looked a lot better live <laughs> yes um it, it, you know it was part of this vampire horror that was coming out at the time but it was overshadowed by the lost boys at yeah time. but i love this one better i mean my friends because you know jason patrick he first Sutherland's like ooh, the lost boys with me it's like oh these grungy a-hole i guess say it assholes these grungy assholes are running around in american southwest in the south biting people killing them viciously and that's my idea of a vampire it's it's something that's scary and nasty yeah they have a real predatory vibe yeah and maybe a huge fan of Catherine bigelow that's one of the reasons i brought it up because I, yeah. I really love her movies. I know there's a lot of controversy over the way she directs sometimes, I guess, being a little too clinical, but it works for me. So, Yeah, and I actually... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. This movie, I loved it so much. I've actually written a paper on it in, you know, in grad school, of course. And then I taught a class about vampires being uh, symbols and, and metaphors for different eras of society. There's an actual book out. It's, uh, I think, in the 90s. Um, Our Vampires Ourselves by Nina Auerbach, where she she talks about some of the same stuff I talked about in my class, which was how vampires morph over the years. To They start off meaning one thing, and they take on different meanings as society needs them to. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, it's, you know, it's Reagan era. It's the era of AIDS, and um, the whole thing with, like, the transfusion and the clean blood, that fits into what was happening in society in the discussion of AIDS at the time. Yeah, and I guess it sort of fits in with the idea of, like, this is a really good example. I, I never thought of it that way, but, like, these these people are kind of ignored by society, right? Like, they have tainted blood. They are, they are people who are almost non-existent to society. People don't know about them. People aren't focused on them until they're confronted with it, and then they go away, which also sort of mirrors uh, Reagan-era policy towards people with, like, AIDS and HIV. And also, like, it's it's crazy that this is Catherine Bigelow's second movie. Like, she, uh, I actually went and watched all of the Catherine Bigelow movies I hadn't seen earlier this year. Um, and so I saw some great ones that I hadn't seen before, like uh, Blue Steel and um, and I guess I actually kind of like Detroit, although I have some problems with it. Uh, and then I saw one that I never want to see again called a little movie called The Way to Water. But 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what a weird movie. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, uh, it's, uh, you know, so when she was trying to get financing for this movie, the story famously goes is that, like, she wanted to make a Western and they're like, Westerns aren't in right now. Pick another genre and try to blend it with um, a Western. And, you know, so vampires were, like you mentioned, kind of big uh, at the time. And it, it is just so interesting looking back because, uh, you know, she she wrote the movie as well or co-wrote the movie. And this feels like someone who's dying to tell a vampire story with all of these like accoutrements removed and it's it was so interesting to learn that it was actually someone trying to make a marketable western because it feels like such a specific vision of vampires uh both in its era but also like in this like universal frontier that um that it's 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 interesting to me that she kind of backed into that as a concept as opposed to like had it fully formed and this isn't actually something that was that was um done before like there's two vampire westerns that were existed before this and like one of them's like dracula versus billy the kid like (laughs) none of them the the, of those there was only two and of those two they were they were not like uh the 80s like revisionist westerns they were like uh super goofy low budget like what if we have dracula fight a cowboy and we've tried to do just horror westerns on the show before and it's actually kind of hard to get even four together that we're excited about it's like bone tomahawk uh there's one i just saw recently called like dead dead calm or dead wake or some shit it's about like a bunch of civil war soldiers essentially uh holding up an old farmhouse that's really good um dead birds dead birds um but like we had trouble coming up with a list of four horror westerns let alone like vampire westerns um that, that, that could cover this. Uh, and I think I think this movie was my first exposure to sort of uh, the, the neo-noir Western or the noir Western sort of um, positing that uh, the West has a sort of lonely desolation that pairs well with noir and crime and uh, the modern West, I should say. And uh, it pairs very well with a lot of the works of Cormac McCarthy, who I'm a big fan of. And uh, even some of the early Coen Brothers stuff like Blood Simple, um, which is, is uh, similarly just painted in blacks and, and, and a shadow um, and is, is a lot less funny than later Coen Brothers stuff or even Raising Arizona, which would come pretty soon after. But uh, anyway, so that's that's one entry point I think that this you could have for this is a sort of uh, nihilist dark western, a, nihil- a noiry western um, or, you know, a vampire or western horror. But my entry point for this was because I I'm not generally a franchise guy. But through IMDb and through random books I would buy, I, <clears throat> I started off my horror journey by going through and trying to watch every zombie movie I could. So jumping around franchises, just trying to catch them all, watched a lot of the, even the, the you know, the Fulci series, Zombie. Um, just, you know, just hungry for that. And then eventually, like, I kind of hit a floor with zom- good zombie movies because especially circa, you know, 2000 to 2006, there weren't that many great zombie movies. There's a lot more now. Um, but, 
I jumped over to, to vampire movies, largely because of, uh, yeah, Bram Stoker's Dracula by Coppola and uh, Martin by George Romero. And the idea of a subversive vampire movie was so appealing to me as a, as a pissed off 13 year old because I didn't want, and now I can appreciate the Hammer Horrors, the Bela Lugosi, uh, Dracula, uh, the sort of more classic version of it. Uh, but at the time, I didn't want the classic. I wanted yeah. a subversion. And so I was so excited for a fucking uh, vampire movie that was riffing off of, you know, the stuff that I had already sort of absorbed either through television, you know, catching snippets of the old stuff or through the parodies of it, you know, like lots of TV shows with parody opening up Dracula's crypt and stuff. And to me, that felt very staid because I was probably more exposed to the parodies than it was the original work at the time. And also, yeah, I wanted something I wanted something subversive. And this movie gave me exactly what I wanted when I was, you know, 13. But also gives you um, something that wasn't a lot. There wasn't a lot of this in movies, which was American vampires. Yeah, you know, vampires are usually an infection that comes from abroad. But these these guys are definitely American. You know, they got <laughs> Jesse their, literally fought in the Civil War. Yeah, Jesse, and they lost. And <laughs> yeah. um, you know, they've got the spurs. They go into uh, as Bill uh, Paxton's character Severin says, "Shit, kicker heaven to eat the people." So. You know, and and they well, this goes into the themes of the uh, the two different families in this film is that they they basically drive only family cars. These are RVs. Oh, yeah. They have the, the, mini, van, the van. They have the station wagon at the end. Yeah. The idea of them traveling on the highways and byways of America is a very interesting reaction to you know, uh, the baby boomer vision of America that, you know, the America's highways will take you wherever you need to go. And then um, there were these these road killers, these these travel killers in, in a in sort of the annals of true crime. And th- this movie is riffing on that, the sort of, you know, even the even the Bonnie and Clyde's, they, they could get around. Uh, they weren't they weren't, you know, in, in powered by the highway, but they could get around because they had cars. They had uh, they had means of, of, of bopping around, committing their crimes and moving on like the dust. Yeah. And I don't know how much this is a just a reflection of kind of the the Western aesthetic or like, again, kind of that the commentary on like Reagan era um, uh, economics and stuff like that. But like. One of the things that obviously started happening even more in the 80s due to the policies of the Reagan administration was like this kind of um, the kind of the death of 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 smaller towns. And like as they go to these these smaller towns, um, it they do feel, again, just a lot more like abandoned and like think about the motel they go to think about. Um, the bar, it just, it's so reminiscent of that idea of like, uh, yeah, well, capitalism's moving everything to the mini malls and these kind of local shops and everything else, like, can't really survive and, and kind of these... manufacturing is moving abroad yeah. and, uh, the farms were dying. I mean, I literally, yeah. I, what I, what I was thinking of when I was watching this movie was I, I just read all the pretty horses, which takes place, um, you know, within 10 years of this, within five years of, of this movie. And uh, it's all about, you know, like the uh, agriculture and the farming, the cattle farming in America um, getting pushed, pushed globally, pushed out of, uh, you know, taken away from small farmers and given to big corporate farms. Yeah. So you just kind of have like this feeling of these kind of 
people abandoned or forgotten by society moving through like areas that have been forgotten and abandoned by like our nation or our nation's economic policies or whatever. So it like it truly feels like um, empty in the way and like a run down um, that almost like matches the characters themselves. Like the vampire characters, like we joked about how they, how the minivan and, or not the minivan, the, uh, the van and the motorhome must smell, but like, yeah, it, everything just kind of feels run down. It's like a, a, a rundown people taking, taking apart the remnants of a society that's barely there. When you think Which about, is, I always say when you think about them running through the fields too, the fields are dusty. Like nothing's yeah. growing. They're not invading rich people's homes and doing the home invasion narrative. They're they're they invade a, a shitty little cowpoke bar. They pull over on the side of the road and wait for to literally be hijacked at one point so they can kill other criminals. Pick up some random women that are driving around that are you know presumably looking out for young, like young women that are looking for to go to a bar, or go to a party. Like they're not picking on. The, the the powers that be, they're picking on the people that got left behind at the powers that be. Yeah, and uh, the dusty the dusty moment's such a good call out because not only does it give that feel of like, yeah, everything's dead anyway, so what would people notice? More dead people moving through. Uh, but also, I love the effect of you as a viewer going, thinking that he's just kicking up dust, which he is. But then that gets blended with the smoke, the dusty smoke coming off his body as the sun starts to uh, decompose his vampire, his new vampire system. Yeah, I love that scene because it, you've, it's the first. Well, you know, there's something wrong because May is acting so strangely and she's saying so many strange things like I'll be here in a billion years. And and then when he's running through the field away from her after she's bitten him, it's hard to tell at first what's really happening is he just kicking up the dust or is that the smoke and then you finally realize hey you know she's a vampire he's gonna die if he doesn't get out of the sun i got the sense from may i mean this totally feeds into what you're saying i got the sense from may that like the rest of them feel like older or um you know maybe they're from a different generation bill paxton could have been picked up in the past five years i don't know but they all have a really big deep bond may feels like she's the baby of the family and almost like They've been traveling around in these desolate towns and they picked up someone who maybe was poor, maybe had, you know, didn't have a job coming up. Like, you know, something about her drawed them to to take her in and make her part of the family. And like, I feel like she's she is the baby of the family. Well, she mentions um, that she's only been around dynamic. for four years. Yeah, those dynamics really read to me, and she seems to be more conflicted about the vampire life in a way that, like, Bill Paxton was brought on, it seems to be, so they had more heavy hitters, like, more, like, uh, people who just loved the blood. Like, it almost feels like they recruited Bill Paxton from a serial killer, like, from a serial (laughs) killer. Like, they caught him murdering people, and they're like, listen, we're going to give you a (laughs) power-up. Uh, yeah, he was probably like, shit, you guys are vampires? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, for, for May, Homer's the one that turned her. So oh, yeah, whenever right. they picked up Homer, he turned May. And that, that plays into a lot of his jealousy of Caleb um, and why he wants to get Sarah. Because, like, well, he says at the end, you know, you turned him and you got I turned you, you turned him. Now I get somebody. So. Yeah. The whole thing. The, that whole thing of- is like. So, yeah, the. 
just on that note, the really the most terrifying scene of the movie for me. I don't know if this movie's like truly scary, even though it has a lot of like great like horror imagery. But like the one part that's just like scary in that sickening sense and like um is the when Homer introduces Sarah to the to his family and then sits down to watch TV and it's just like oh no please someone stop this there's a lot of quiet horror in this the bar scene uh, famously is very very quiet even though there's a jukebox playing like it's very quiet there's not a lot of screaming and yelling everyone's just kind of like hoping that like these people are just going to float on in the next their next you know meal and they're going to skip over the rest of them and that that scene where they're watching TV Homer brings her into the room to watch TV. Um, the, the second most chilling thing in that scene is uh, Jesse turns to Severin and he just kind of points and Severin steps out the door to go grab um, Caleb's uh, parents, uh, Caleb's dad, excuse me. Um, and it's done so quietly and so subtly and so coldly that you can tell that this is something that the family is kind of working through. Like nobody um nobody looks at homer with a sickening sense of like uh she's just a kid everyone's just like well we turned to kids so what's fair is fair yeah no one seems that that's the definitely the part that gets under your skin like you almost expect someone in that group to be not as like amoral like i don't i don't know if they're immoral or just like um they're amoral right like they just they've evolved beyond or devolved beyond like our concepts of like humanity and so they don't see a recognition of of just their food as having rights um so like the way that everyone just kind of looks and is like oh yeah we keep odd hours and go back to our game and it's like good for you homer you do whatever you need to do like you kind of expect one of them just being a quote-unquote adult in the room to be like uh, it's not a good idea. Like, don't do this. And yeah, the complete abject uh, disinterest in, or care into whether Homer decides to do that or not, like, is chilling. It, the fact that they're, they are amoral. Um, they've created a family together, a family unit with a mother, a, a father. You know, when, when they grab, when Severin grabs Caleb in the beginning, he tells him, this is your mother now. Yeah, you know, when when referring to Diamondback, um, so getting another daughter for them is fine, and having Homer have a little friend, you know, that's his same is going to be his same age the rest of their existence is fine with them. It's also Dracula movies tend to have that sort of uh, that sort of push and pull where Dracula loves being Dracula, but he also is feeling a pain at his ex- his existence. Um, I don't think Jesse Diamondback any of them feel that they just feel like well. Uh, we're vampires and we seem to be having a good time. Uh, why not bring her in? Yeah. I actually think that having a good time is a really good point. Cause that, I, I think most vampire movies I had seen, there's like a pain of like wanting more food or like wanting a connection. Like so many vampire movies are like the, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a, like, the, a true retelling of Dracula, which is probably a lot I'd seen at this point, or just, like, that idea of, like, they're, you know, they're seductors and they're trying to, like, you know, um, which is, like, what they were a metaphor for originally and all that all that stuff. But um, I just – it seems like they 
don't necessarily enjoy being vampires as much. Like, it does seem like a curse, which I know became a much more of a bigger part of the, the vampire myth, like, post probably, like, the 80s. But it really feels like they accept their existence and they've developed a uh, a life inside that existence. But they just – they seem so just tired all the time. And, like, they have these moments of joy, um, especially, like, uh, you know, the ma and the pa of the group. But but Homer especially just seems like, you know, yeah, this is my life and it's kind of miserable and the rest of them just kind of go about their day. I mean, Bill Paxton looks like he's having a great time. But as you mentioned, Peter, maybe he was a fucking serial killer. They're like, oh, we could use him. But yeah, he's it, good, it does. A good, uh, good tool. They do just seem so <laughs> tired. They seem to only be alive when they're taking blood or they're threatening to take blood. Like, that's when they, they seem the most happy. Like, even their games, they're, they're playing Russian Roulette and Five Finger Filet. And yeah. that actually references um, Aliens. Some of these people I, some of these people may have been in a movie called Aliens, I understand. <laughs> so, uh, um, James Cameron's Aliens. Catherine Bigelow pulled her cast from Aliens, largely. Um, and she did that on purpose. She thought she could – they had to make this movie somewhat fast. She thought they could capitalize quickly on, like, their sort of their, – their easy camaraderie. Um, or, or should I say, you know, well-rehearsed camaraderie that looks easy. They're, the, the fact that they're all just such a, a, a wonderfully tight ensemble cast of actors. And so uh, – One person some- didn't get the script, though, and he decided not to be in it. And I feel like – that is reading about that was a good way to improve this movie. Uh, which person? Michael Bean was supposed to play Caleb. Oh, he seems a little old. Uh, not nineteen eighty six. Not back then. No. Yeah. What are you <laughs> talking about? All right. Like I agree. Hold on. I agree, Peter. You shouldn't time travel and take Michael Bean from twenty nineteen and cast him as Caleb in in 1987's Near Dark. But I think nineteen eighty seven's Michael Bean could pull it off. I I've seen Aliens recently. I've seen Navy Seals. A lot of those movies, the the Michael Bean movies um, from that era, and like he was more baby faced, but he always looked like a forty year old alcoholic. <laughs> Whereas Adrian Pazdar, who I don't think is as good of an actor, but like Adrian Pazdar has that sort of look where you're like. He could be 25. He could also be like 18 and just kind of more muscly. Like he he has a boyishness that I think lends itself better to the role once once we start talking about the third act, which all my problems with the movie lie with the plotting decisions in the third act. Um So for the uh, record, he, he would have been act, he would have been 30 in 1986. Um but I I think like I think the weak link is Caleb. Like I think he has trouble selling the love story and is just not that good of an actor. And so it's uh, the movie is so fundamentally I, I shouldn't say built around the love story, but like that's the happy ending at the end, which is I'm not a huge fan of the ending to begin with. The the kind of happy oh I guess they found their family after all. It doesn't doesn't feel to fit the tone of the movie. But maybe I would have liked it better if Michael Bean, because he's a better actor, had been uh, cast in that role. Yeah, I agree. Michael Bean is definitely a better actor, but I still think they probably should have gone with uh, door number three, um, whatever door number three was. But Adrian Pazdar is not. A, yeah, he's not a particularly impressive actor, uh, but I think age wise, he fits better. And I feel like at a younger you need to cast someone with a younger, more babyish face because I the third act is entirely about like 
a young boy is rescued from the from the throes of you know the this, this violent uh, dark life. Um, and uh, I just don't know if that would work if if the you would have had to have a different third act if you had Michael Bean because Michael Bean looks like he's he looks like 40 miles of bad road. So I'm torn on the third act thing you mentioned, though, just because, like, I don't like the plot development of the cure. And like, I would have I would have rather had him stay in his new family unit and then, you know, had to deal with kind of the either accept the amorality or reject it ultimately like him kind of just tapping out of it is a little less satisfying however the action or the ending like confrontation scenes that come out of that i really love yeah i mean those action sequences are great desiree what do you make of the third act um well my main problem with that ending um is may who does to me seem to enjoy the power she has as a vampire yeah. uh, is it's taken away from her without her consent without yeah you know they they just do it to her and it's um it reifies the patriarchy because look you're you're you know nice young girl we're gonna save you whether you want to be saved or not and now you're gonna be part of caleb's family where there's actually no mother and no mother's ever mentioned either um yeah, I just didn't like that they took that choice away from her. Yeah, and it also, like, it makes them as much of villains because, like, the problem with the vampires, right? Like, when they make some of the vampire in this movie, it's what Homer gets mad about. Like, they're making them a vampire without their consent, right? And, like, the quote-unquote heroes are doing the exact same thing. Um, and the, vamp- the vampires can make a case. You're- we're saving you from morality. Like if they're trying to justify their reasons for like taking away that choice, like we're doing X and Y and blah, blah, blah. It's actually better for you. And, um, and that like would mirror exactly what our quote unquote heroes are, are saying too. So do you, out, out of curiosity, do you think that um, that was um, supposed to like purposely mirror the lack of consent that vampires give? Or do you think it was just supposed to be kind of a, we saved May? Well, I mean, if you think of it narratively in the terms of a Western, so the bad guys are vanquished, the um, the damsel in distress, as it were, is rescued mm-hmm. and gets to be with her prince cowboy. Um, that fits. But what I think undercuts it just a little is that freeze frame shot at the end where May is marveling at her hands, not bursting out into flames. And she, it, it, the look on her face, it's ambiguous. It doesn't look like she really is happy. Whereas Caleb's overjoyed. Yep. And, and I think the ending would have been stronger in in every other way if they had left more ambiguous feelings about the fact that, like, in a sense, she had the night taken away from her. And in a sense, they're now aw- awakened to the idea that the night is full of these, like, these terrors. <laughs> Not to uh, <laughs> paraphrase a, a line from a show everyone hates now for some reason. Um, but... I feel like they really dropped the ball in the third act in how they set up the opposing struggle, which I, I love the fact that Caleb and May, even though she doesn't consent to it, um, I love the fact that, you know, just at least in terms of dynamics, Caleb and May splitting from the clan and forming their own family that's not predatory, that's mm-hmm. it's trying to find, you know, a third path, that it's not about, you know staying a human uh, and, you know, living that living a life in a podunk dead-end town, 
just getting drunk at the local bar every night or becoming a vicious, awful serial killer that eats everything, everything in its path, uh, man, woman, child, whatever. Uh, there could be a third path where yada, yada, I'm not trying to rewrite the movie, but there could be a third path that, that could lead to a more ambiguous ending, sort of like how the Babadook ends. It, it, it's not that the monsterism wins. It's not that the humanity wins. It's that I think that giving the transfusion as a sort of the way it's introduced to the plot is such a panacea deus ex machina moment. And it frustrated me when I was like a kid and it frustrates me now. It, 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 uh, and I think that it really derails a lot of the, um, it, any of the sort of, um, elegant sort of metaphors that are going on here with uh, drug abuse or uh, the AIDS crisis or joining a gang or, you know, just that there's a lot of great metaphors about 80s fear that could be read into vampirism. And instead, they're just like they find a panacea. They find this like this mystical cure all of blood transfusions. And I think that like uh, the fact that they use that and then they don't even commit to it. They don't even have a moment where Caleb's like, we can cure you. <laughs> it's just like, well, now we got to kill you guys. I, I I don't like the fact that they get clean. I prefer, I would pre- prefer if they had found some other way to like contend with their, their, um, their hunger um, that was, you know, more fascinating. Like I reject the, the horrific violence that you've been committing. We can find something else, even if it's kind of ugly or, you know, sorry, even if it's kind of um, awkward or, you know, I really do want to tear people's throats out, but I, I you know, I can drink a cow or some shit. <laughs> the thing that's also interesting is that the sun throughout the film is seen as a force of oppression because it, it destroys the vampires. But at the end, he expects her to just go into the sun because it's daylight. It's supposed to be good. It's, you know, the white hat, black hat yeah. thing. The opposite of night is day, and therefore we're in the day, and the day is good. The night was, like you said, full of terrors. <laughs> yeah, and she doesn't really, like, they talk about that, and she seems interested in the stars and stuff like that. I'm trying to remember, like, I I don't think it has a scene where she's like, I miss the sun. There is none. And, and in fact, Caleb himself says he sees better in the night. Yeah, it is. Um, I really... all Like, I think it's interesting that it's a vampire movie with a cure that works, which is so rare and odd. But I don't think it's... Um, I don't think its uniqueness uh, equates to success. And I, I agree. All the kind of plot developments that come from that are either like uh troubling and like the what they're kind of saying or just kind of like just uninteresting narratively like i i don't find the like the thing that you said peter about like um them going off to make their new family as like post vampires all that like compelling i don't know it's just um it this movie doesn't feel like one that should have that pat level of a happy ending even if there is some like Obviously, the fact that May may be now stuck in a new life that's been uh, her old life taken from her, the people that she loved taken from her, and uh, also she doesn't really have an avenue to go back, right? Because, like, as far as we know, uh, there's not, like, other vampires around that anyone's aware of, so it's not like she can be like, hey, no, 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 like, I was fine being a vampire, cool if you don't want to, I liked you, I'm gonna go back and become a vampire, like, all the vampires are dead. So, uh, they've really, like, not just taken away her consent, but taken away like any avenue to uh, return to where she was. So it, I don't know. It's like, but again, 
uh, I to get back to the part of the third act that does work, which is like, and let's we can we can talk about this from a um, not just the third act scenes, but the action in this movie is amazing, especially from a second time director. Um, and like, I have either of you guys seen uh, the Loveless? No, I haven't seen it. So it's um, it's very interesting. It has like Willem Dafoe as like this uh, like fifties era biker that invades a small town. But it's it's very much like it's, it wasn't a student film, but it has that air of like someone trying something super uh, interesting, but not being wholly successful at it. And so for this to be like the next movie that seems so confident just across the board, and then has these like truly iconic like sequences the 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 motel shootout is one of my favorite like shootouts in film the the light being the the true enemy as it comes through and starts like slowly permeating the room is such a visceral scene and it really makes you one one thing that vampire movies sometimes have a hard time doing is like making you feel the threat of sunlight because we're just so used to sunlight. Like, we walk into it, we see it. Like, you get it, a vampire gets hit with sunlight and bursts into flame. But, like, I don't think you as an audience are, like, that uncomfortable in that moment as the sun's coming up. Just because it doesn't feel as much of a danger, like, instinctively. And as the little bullet holes make more and more light in that room, I feel like that's the one of the only times I can think of in a vampire movie where I am like, oh my god, there's too much sun. Like, this, it needs to stop. There's sun's getting too much. Oh no, another bullet hole? How are they going to get away from the sun? It feels impossible. Like, it it really makes you feel as, like, uh, anxious as the characters are. And, and they set that up when uh, Jesse goes to check into the motel. Um, the sunlight streaming through the window slowly coming toward his hand like a killer coming toward a victim. Um, while he's trying to get the keys and get out of there and get back into the dark. I also love the way they all drive around during the, like, just because it's day, it's not like they need to sleep, I guess. So we're still going to drive around. We've just adapted cars for, for that function. Um, but also, yeah, the, the bar scene, uh, is amazing that I love the scene of Bill Paxton just ripping out the cords of that semi truck, like an animal, uh, until it stops. Like it is, it's so good good and there's it's not just one sequence like the movie is littered with these amazing set pieces yeah yeah the the bar sequence the the final you know series of uh you know the family getting torn apart by uh through battle um and the 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 motel shootout are all shot with this sort of no pun intended shot with this sort of uh panache the sort of like aggressive style where you're like well you know she did get to make her western <laughs> she gets it did get to make a movie about like uh you know uh violent capable killers smashing up against one another until the other one comes out bloodless yeah there's there's a shootout there's a guy on a horse you know he lassos her at one point there, there's all of that western um accoutrements in the film yeah yeah but it's an improvement over a Western because um, very few Westerns uh, feature um, Bill Paxton uh, using his spurs to open up someone's artery and then uh, drinking someone and saying, <laughs> finger licking good. Um, I don't think John yeah. Ford ever made a movie like that. 
No, yeah. I don't think he did. <laughs> Even in Wild Bunch, they were like, if they move, kill him. But Bill Paxton's like, if they move, I'll eat him. No, Bill Paxton is so good. It is so funny to me that watching these like Bill Paxton movies from uh, from the 80s, especially like we sometimes uh, make jokes about him, like being so over the top and his like uh, cockiness that like he he approaches like this zen area of uh, it's like uh, it's like Schrodinger's cat for good or bad acting it's like is this really good or is this not so good it kind of exists at both places at once unless you peer too closely into it but it's so funny that he was like that uh, you know he was the cocky marine from aliens and that like he almost immediately in the mid 90s and for the rest of his career aged into like concerned dad like <laughs> like everything is like i am just he only had two modes like i'm wild and crazy or else it's like i think we need to put the money back in the plane to keep our family safe like <laughs> like those were the only two paxton modes you either got concerned dad uh or guy who it burns when he pees in as an astronaut but or like i'm going uh i'm I'm taking it up as high as I can. What's the movie? Haywire. He plays like, uh, you know, a very serious oh, yeah. veteran. And he's sort of like the, you know, the, the, the dignified movie? old man. Yeah, the Soderbergh movie. Yeah. He's the dignified old man dash veteran who can still kill. I feel like that's um, in my brain. I always read that as like he survived an aliens like situation when he was a cocky, insane person. <laughs> and he just like got really like sober minded for the rest of his life. You guys are forgetting his role on Big Love, though, as the uh, polygamist. Yeah, but he was in full-on dad mode for that one, right? Yeah. That was that was like, we need to keep our family together, and this family together, and this family together. <laughs> you had to keep all, all the families. families together. He was more dad than dad. <laughs> I, okay, so I actually met Bill Paxton um, at Comic-Con. Awesome. Burying the lead here. He's one of the nice. He wa- well was one of the nicest people ever, and I'm just a huge fan of his. So I'm not. You guys are, you're, you're cutting me to the quick with all this no. talk. <laughs> Hold on, we love Bill Paxton, uh, and no, he is amazing. Um, I told, uh, I texted Peter. I made myself sad watching this last night. Like it was one of those split moments where you don't re- like you kind of forget that someone who has passed on has passed on. And I'm watching Bill Paxton and near dark and loving it. And I'm like, God, that movie frailty he directed was so good. When's he going to direct another movie? Oh shit. Like, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, he is, um, I-, I actually think as much as I like his early, um, brash maverick characters, like I really think that like, some of his acting in like a simple plan and um apollo 13 and tombstone and uh what's that what false move so good in one like he really like i don't want to say aged in but once he kind of toned it down like i don't get me wrong i really like these over-the-top performances but i think that's really where he like gave some amazing nuanced performances that are um a little less showy than these but really like cemented him as like just this amazing uh, everyman type actor who was so good thrust into like these uh, these uh, challenging situations. And it's kind of I just um, Severin, the character. Yeah. Probably one of the most joyful vampires in that he gets a lot of joy out of being a vampire. <laughs> yeah. Killing yeah. people and he has fun with it 
And I think that's one of the things I liked about this movie is that the vampires are not, you know, they're not serious seductors and they're not, um, you know, succubi or whatever. They're this family that's out there having fun. They stick together. Maybe there's a little bit of an issue because Homer's pissed off because he's stuck in a kid's body and he's having adult desires, just like Kirsten Dunst in uh, that other one. <laughs> but yeah. the interview with the vampire, yes. You know, these guys go out and have a good time with it. I, I kind of disagree with what you said earlier about them not really enjoying it. I think they really do enjoy it. And they have to they have to hide during the day when they can and they get a little bit yeah. of rest. But they really enjoy coming out in the night and everything that the night means to them. Yeah. Feasting and having a great time. But I think they enjoy it. It's just that I think that they I would a little weird. I think that they enjoy it when they are queuing up for violence, right? Like when they're just driving from place to place, like they they don't seem to be having as pumped. But like everything else is like foreplay for them. They're like they even like they seem kind of bored in the hotel room. And then Severin's like pulls out a gun. He's like, "We want to play Russian roulette." And they start playing Russian roulette. At some point, they're playing cards and they seem kind of bored. And then they threaten to shoot each other and they start giggling and slapping each other on the back. Like just the the idea of engaging with violence even violence without repercussion and without drinking is is like makes them giddy uh well i definitely think severin has a lot of fun regardless all the time i i do love that he is uh so obviously vampires in movies usually have this thing where like you know bullets don't don't hurt them permanently and they you know regenerate or whatever else but like it they still don't like for those things to happen right like they're still they still cause a, a element of pain and, and they're inconvenient. Uh, I think he's like the first movie vampire I can remember where like he's like, yeah, I'm going to be fine. Like if I if my face gets all fucked up or I get hit by a car or anything else, like I am a vampire. Part of being fun of the vampires that I, I just regenerate. So like he is unbothered by by any level of pain that, done to his physical form because like – he has embraced the fact that that is part of the fun of being a vampire. Yeah, and there's a scene in the, the the bar scene is just so fucking good that in the moment when Bill Paxton is uh, he comes in and he acts like I, I feel like anybody that's been to bars enough times has ran into someone at least you know hinting at at this guy the guy that comes into a bar just like fucking roaring to go he's either already drunk or like you know he's gonna be drunk in twenty minutes and. He goes up to the bartender. He's rude to the bartender. He's He seems to be picking fights, but as soon as it goes up to the edge of a fight, he starts, like, cracking wise and pretending like the guy is his best friend, and then he starts fucking with him eight seconds later. Like, it's a very recognizable... The thing he's riffing on is very recognizable, and it's the worst human being in the world. <laughs> and we've... I, I, I Yeah, I think if you spent any amount of time in a, in a bar, you've ran into someone like this. And there's a moment when he finally eggs on the guy at the bar and to start choking him to death. Yeah. And he, he mimes like... <clears throat> like he like fakes choking to death. And uh, then... <laughs> and then he like kind of like lets up the ghost like he doesn't really need to breathe. And he just takes uh, the glasses off the guy who's choking him and puts them on and kind of waits a second. And then... He fucking like crushes the dude's head and neck with his bare hands because he's super powered. <laughs> and it's this whole like it's this amazing exchange that tells you everything you need to know about Severin's uh, personality in like a minute. Um, it, yeah. it's, it's like characterization through violence, which I think horror movies uh, do really well because they can go to these like dark places um, 
that that like action movies even sometimes can't go um, without making certain characters feel just like sociopaths. One of the other things I like is uh, the thing with the jackknife truck at the end when oh, he yeah. d- destroys Severin um, because he learned that when he was hunting with May from that other trucker that she ate <laughs> yeah. for him. Yeah. I do like also uh, the part where he's feasting on her because he won't kill and he gets a little too enthusiastic about it and she pulls away and says, you know, if you drink too much, you'll kill me. And he doesn't seem to care all that much. No. He's got this brightness in his eyes and he's ready to run into the night and have fun with her. Um, I Which... mean, his character's probably been fairly repressed all that time. Uh, you know, cowboy being a good son, the whole thing, no mom. But she represents this sort of freedom that he's wants to take, but he can't take that one extra step, which is making his own kill. I actually think that scene, the, the, when he starts to play at the idea of hunting himself, um, I, I see it as him trying, his masculinity is pushing him to do it. Like his sense of like, well, uh, it's kind of embarrassing that, you know, she has to hunt for me, you know, continually, or I have to drink from her after she hunts. Like he, I feel like it, it, he's just as much motivated by the fact that the crew is offering to murder him as he feels somewhat embarrassed by the fact that like, he eventually starts to feel embarrassed by the fact that like he can't make a kill. I think part of it though is just that kind of idea of like, not being willing to do the work, but like kind of siphoning like the benefit of it from like he is definitely like benefiting from May's like willingness to do this, but like it's not like he's like, um, oh yeah, oh man, I really I'm not, I'm not really contributing. I'm gonna have a little bit here. Like he's he's like still being like a glutton, even if it hurts like the person that he claims to love, right. It kind of serves him right that he spends half the film running around bent over sick and throwing up. So <laughs> Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> he's got he's, you know, he's got drool coming out of his mouth like half the movie. <laughs> and they really go hard on the uh let's say he, he hasn't slept in a while. What do you think? Like like he's in fucking Fallout Boy? Sure, yeah, give him that level of eye makeup. <laughs> Give him the follow-up boy look, yeah. I do think that there's a really smart choice that Captain Bigelow makes, even though I grow to resent Caleb's family as um, as the movie goes on, because I don't like the third act. But um, they do these snapshots of what's going on back home and the quiet tragedy of it, because that's what I love about the movie, is it's very understated and it's very yeah. quiet, um, which makes it, it adds to the horror, it adds to the tragedy of it, it adds to the, the uh, like, emotional ballast of it. It gives the movie a, a sense of balance that, like, um, it's, it's sort of quiet and, like, you feel like if these, if these people don't go to the police station and start making a fuss, like, no one's gonna bother looking for Caleb. Um, and there's these snap, snapshots of, like, back home of them sort of, like, the father and the daughter trying to, like, get on without Caleb and, like, some of it is practical stuff, like, the farm seems to need him and some of it is just, like, emotional stuff, like, yeah, I need my, I need my, I, I miss my, my family. Um, and the, del- it, it really tough touches on um, what the what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is that um, there's a sort of delicateness to life and society that can easily crumble when there's a tragedy. And you get the sense that like Caleb being made a victim, so to speak, uh, of, of all this, and Caleb is a victim, I should not say so to speak, um, uh, Caleb being a victim is, is uh, 
you know, while it's not like the thing that's tearing down all the society around it in like an economic sense, it shows you how like small tragedies or big, tra- you know, big tragedies in a small scale um, can can just uh, completely decimate a family and, and lead to the sort of like um, barren sense that a lot of these small towns have. Um, and there's a scene that we didn't touch on where a, he's at a bus stop. And a cop is interrogating him like he's a junkie. Um, also played very quietly and very wonderfully, I think, even by Adrian Pazdara as well as the actor who plays the cop. Um, somehow not Hitchcock from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, and he uh, he basically gives him money for a bus ticket back home. Gives Caleb money for a bus ticket back home. And it's such an expert sort of moment that I think Catherine Bigelow knew and Eric Red knew to include um, because they um, they knew that they they knew that this moment was going to read differently with the cop the cop even though he's like a force of of he's trying to basically harass a drug addict um, the cop is coming up to him and he's like he, he would have sympathy for another white man He's the, the law and order part of the Western. And, you know, at first when he sees Caleb thinking he's a junkie, of course he's going to go harass him. And, you know, we don't want that in our town. We don't yeah. even know where this town is. Um, but he feels sympathy for him because he sees him as just some kid who's sick who really wants to go home. So he can pony up the extra $3 Caleb needs to go. And by the way, his town is so small that the bus station doesn't even have a bus that goes there. He has to yeah. go to the next biggest town over. Um, and by the way, also that actor is Troy Evans. There we go. Thank you. Most recently in Veep and Bosch. Yes. Yeah, he's 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 one of those. He's that guy. You know, he's that, he's like he's one that of those, guy. Yeah, that guy. He looks just like Hitchcock from um, or the other guy from uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Uh, the other guy that you're thinking of, not Hitchcock. Scully. He uh, he starred in five seasons of Big Love with Bill Paxton. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> um, they don't mean this movie because There's... a one of them's not in the movie. Listen, I'm not he, saying <laughs> even if he was, but later on, a guy that looks like the cop in this movie will go to star with Bill Paxton on HBO show. I'm not saying that all white people look the same. I'm just saying that yeah, okay, well, all white people look the same. Okay, Aaron. All people like, like all cops look the same. Scully looks like the cop in this movie. Yeah. One right. last thing I wanted to bring up, uh, just in terms of her direction, um, besides the callbacks, like the thing with the trucker and the jackknife truck, there's the scene before they descend upon that uh, bar where they're all silhouetted with the fog, and it's very menacing. And then later on, when Caleb comes to save the day on his horse, he's also silhouetted in the fog, but it's yeah. not menacing it's here comes the hero yeah slow and quiet but it's still not scary such a confident like again like the the way this the way this movie was shot the 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 way it's done like this movie and i can't believe this movie's 95 minutes i always think of this movie as two plus hours um just because it feels feels like a saga it does it feels like a saga it feels epic in scope it doesn't feel like a quickie 90 minute like (laughs) the credits are hitting right at the hour and a half mark but that just is a testament to how much like memorable moments are packed into this movie and how well done it is that uh it's hard to believe it, it, it. Like it has to be. You couldn't fit that many iconic 
vampire western moments uh in 90 minutes like uh but yeah it's it's just it's really great and um i really like the for my kind of final thoughts i'll just say i really like um you know it's not it's not a shock that a vampire movie would play with the concept of like age is a burden but the thing that this movie i really gets that's right is like it's not necessarily always a burden but there is like a a wariness to to aging and you know that that leads to like lance hendrickson's character of like the i've been around since the civil war i've seen it all and just kind of again unmoved with anything like lance hendrickson even when they're trying to kill caleb at the end uh him and uh i know it's confusing when i refer to people by both their actors names and their uh and adrian pazdar no, um, no, no, no. When he, when him and um, 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 thank you, uh, Diamondback Jeanette Goldstein's character, um, are um, are trying to kill Caleb at the end. Like, like Homer is like desperate. Um, uh, Severin is like just just oh good a good murder of the family. <laughs> That's what we're doing. I'm into it. Those two don't seem like. Like, when they're, like, riding to their death and the sun's coming through, they just seem like, eh, I guess it's time for this then. Like, they – and and I really like that that is kind of something throughout it. Like, May is a new, new vampire who's, like, the prospect of immortality is something that, like, she's kind of still processing. Like, she's looking up at the stars and, and wondering, like, how that's going to affect her relationship. So, when she sees Caleb, it's like, I like Caleb. And I think that's a lot of her motivation for turning him. Like, if I'm going to be stuck here on this, like, pl- this planet flying through this universe with, like, the uh, on the precipice of immortality, I-, I want someone there with me that I that I like. And you know, Bill Paxton has embraced it as like an agent of chaos, and and Homer's like his age and and the the, the longevity of time has like trapped him in a in a body that doesn't show the passage of time and uh, Diamondback and Lance Hendrickson's character <laughs> are, you know, are just like, um, you know, they, they love each other and they love the kill, but otherwise there's like, there doesn't seem to be that much new in the world. And I really like the way this movie kind of represents those, those, those time scales and how it affects all of our vampire characters in different ways. Um, because, uh, you know, again, I could praise the direction and the scenes of this for a long time, but I really think for a movie that it has so much style, I think the thematic components running through it are equally as, as strong once you kind of really soak up all the different way their ca- these characters are reacting to their, you know, curse slash gift. There's a sort of uh, unspoken poeticism in the way that Catherine Bigelow approaches the material. Um, and I think that that supersedes how, you know, s- some of the performances, namely the main two, uh, aren't that uh, aren't aren't that uh, giving. I mean, I didn't talk about Lance Henriksen, uh, my hero in this movie. Um, Helps that like, he already looks dead. Yeah, he's he's this like I love him in this, especially after Aliens, because he's he's sort of this like he's tall and serpentine and he has a long jacket and his shirt is always open. And I think he has like a, a collarless unbuttoned shirt with his like chest hair poking through. And he's kind of, he kind of looks like this like big snake man. Um, 
And Jeanette Goldstein has her own sort of like this sort of powerful look. Like she's just like, she's like, I, I, I don't ride the roads. I am the roads. Like I, I love that shit. Um, but you know, the main two performances in Caleb and May are, are, are not particularly that interesting. Um, but it doesn't matter because Catherine Bigelow takes a sort of formalist approach to the movie by just in, in, injecting it with like 900 cc's of style. And uh, it reminds me actually very much of, uh, to just take a side part here, it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite movies of all time, uh, a flawless horror movie, The Hitcher, um, who Eric Red also wrote. Um, and they have a similar sense of just sort of like the foreboding longness of the open road, the sort of like desolate openness of, of this world around them. And uh, Catherine Bigelow choosing to... Uh, lean into tone and atmosphere and uh, Desiree you, you spoke about this these shots of like people standing in the smoke and the fog and and these um, and under this these street lights um, sort of casting and the, the moonlight casting shadows on this open desert plains people standing on hills and they're just silhouettes in the dark like there's a very dramatic sense of, of light in this uh, that feels very nourish it feels very very much like um, like people standing out against like the edge of the world. Um, and, and that sort of melancholy sense that, that, that this world is ending. Um, and these people are sort of, um, uh, you know, reaping whatever benefits they can at the end of the world. It's just, it's just so potent for me. Um, I really don't like the plotting in the third act. Um, I, I, I'm not saying I hate the whole third act because it ha ends up being very emotionally satisfying, but I don't really like the plotting in the third act and largely because like, it, <laughs> I like the fact that I like the movie when it's sort of just a connection of like, um, uh, of character building encounters with random people along the road, like a bloody road movie. I don't like the idea that the movie comes full circle. Um, and, and, uh, I, I, I just think that the, the, there's a that sense of atmosphere is just it's indispensable. That you can't lose that. It, it's there's a quietness into it, a melancholy quietness in it. And that there's moments like the bar scene, or sorry, there's moments like the you know the shootout at the motel that have like a rousing metal score. But a lot of the darkest, scariest moments in the movie have no score. There's no strings or ambi ambient music in the background. Catherine Bigelow just owns the frame and decides that like, you know, if I shoot my actors in a certain way, I can imbue emotions on them or I can heighten, you know, the emotions that they're giving that like, you know, maybe the dialogue isn't, the, their dialogue reading is not necessarily, uh, you know, what I wanted. But um if I shoot them in a certain way, you're going to feel exactly what I want you to feel. So, because Catherine Bigelow is very famous uh, as like, you know, just like a director with a sense of style and panache and vision, doesn't mean that they're any less great just because the film bros love her. Um, she's, she is like, she, she's just fucking got it. She's got a sense of style, um, a sense of, a sense of command over the camera that like almost no, no directors have. Yeah, and like you said in this film, I mean, that, that assurance behind the camera she has it's just incredible um back you know back when i first saw this film of course she was nobody and for me loving horror the way i do when she became a bigger name i was like i remember her because she directed my horror film that <laughs> i love so much and now she's known by everybody um i know that 
film bros latch onto her because she's so famous and she used to be married to James Cameron and all the other stuff. But I just like her assurance, the way she upends certain tropes of the vampire um, film and westerns in, by melding these two together. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, Lance Henriksen's Jesse has a gun with a cross on it doesn't bother him. Nobody yeah. gets staked. Um, nobody has fangs. They're just bloodsuckers. But they're not Dracula vampires. You know what I mean? They're not um, a Nosferatu style either. Um, yeah. I just I just love this movie. I, I do have a little issue with me not getting a choice of becoming you know, back to the part of the patriarchy where a woman's supposed to be, apparently. But other than that, I mean, I didn't really have the same issues you have with the third act. I, I, the family was going to fall apart. Probably when Homer turned May is when that family was going to fall apart because yeah. May was never really fully in it. If you notice, we don't really see her kill that much in the 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 um, in the bar when they're all going crazy killing. She she's drinking blood, but you don't see her actually bite or slash anyone yeah and she kind of even explains it as like hey this is something you have to do caleb like about survive like she doesn't get joy or even like or even like just uh yeah it's what like part of a process that everyone just kind of goes through each night it feels more of like a self-justification of like yeah i have to yeah she has she has to eat whereas the rest of them are more like cats and they play with their food first before they eat it so yep Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Desiree, for coming on the show and, and letting us uh, talk about this uh, fantastic movie. Um, do you have uh, Do you have anything to plug? Um, I believe I'm writing an article for the salute for the year oh. of the month for October. I'm just not sure if it's going to be Basket Case or one of the other movies I picked. Oh, awesome. So <laughs> that'll probably come up. And occasionally you can find me on thenerdelement.com where I do a lot of nerd stuff. But I also do a lot of horror uh, movie reviews there. Awesome. Fact, well, I, if anyone wants to know what they should be watching for Spooktober, I wrote an article a few years ago for them, which is the 31 Nights of Halloween, where you, you know, a movie per night, but I actually shoved in two movies per night. So there's <laughs> 62 choices for you there. I love it. Awesome. Well, we'll send us those links and we'll put them in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, uh, they, go look at the show notes and those links will be in there. That sounds awesome. And I want to check those out myself. Um, <laughs> is, wait, hold on. Is vampirism just, uh, you know, is our spooktober watching a similar form of vampirism? <laughs> we stay up late into the night to drive this disgusting hunger that we have. <laughs> Oh, it's Spooktober? Yeah, we keep odd hours. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so this kind of uh, this uh, wraps up Ladies Fright Night Part 2. Again, just so much fun. Thank you to everyone who guested on it. Thanks again to Carrie Nelson for uh, helping to produce this and putting together. Uh, we can't wait to have you back on as a guest uh, talking about something very different in a month we're not going to announce quite yet but uh if it's the opposite of horror movies i think that's what it is so uh, but that'll be uh that'll be coming out here in december but we have we still have our halloween special and it's one i'm super excited about uh it comes out next week it's starring uh a little guest that's a fan favorite um and just a just a favorite i think person of people that know him uh it's a it's a sentient uh what's what do they call him a hedgehog <laughs> That's a weird yes. inside joke. Hedgehog or a uh, 
hedgehog or pug uh uh but uh douglas layman returning um for i think the third or fourth time he'll actually be on again uh right after that in november but we introduced a little movie to him called society which is a favorite of peter and mine and something we've been really trying to figure out like since we started this podcast how to talk about it or work it in a month and it it felt like halloween special material because i just i don't think i've ever seen anything like it I don't think anyone ever has before or since, and I uh, uh, can't think of a better guest that I want to talk about more than, than Douglas Lehman, who who loved the movie as well uh, after he watched it for the first time. So, super psyched about that, and then we'll talk more about uh, some big changes of pace from all the spookiness uh, at the end of next week's episode for November, but... Um, until then, again, this was so much fun. Desiree, you were a great guest. I hope you'll uh, you'll come back and talk to us again. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to um, highlight this movie that I've loved for 30-whatever years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you saw it in theater, so that is... <laughs> well, that's not what they. But I, yeah, you you know you mentioned. I'm sure it was like this person who you know I you haven't seen the Loveless, so this is like the first movie you saw. It's in theaters. It's something that sounds like you were passionately defended about. It is cool that like eventually she became like this kind of uh, name director who like won the Academy Award for best director. Like it's. Uh, it's it's always fun when like I feel that way about like Del Toro who like I was obsessed with Blade Two and even liked Mimic and then he won the Best Director statue like you know Mimic's twenty great. years later <laughs> yeah I love Mimic uh, but like it did feel like this weird thing that I was uh, showing to friends um, uh, and and I really liked his movies and then yeah Best Director winner <laughs> just it's just it's 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 always fun when these people that you feel like you were um, uh, evangelical about like sort of become. Uh, you know, get their success for maybe a little more mainstream movies, although I guess a little less the case in Del Toro's But case. also also for me as a, a younger woman, seeing a woman this successful yeah. um, and doing horror so well, which was, you know, like I said, my genre, so. Yeah, that's what we'll end it with. Bigelow, if you're listening, do another, uh, we'll do another movie. It would be nice. You don't have anything on the docket that I can see, but also do another horror movie or another oh, western movie. Revisionist horror. westerns are huge. Or another horror western. That'd be awesome, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kevin Bigelow. There's at least two, movies. two good ones. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, again, ho- enjoy your spooky nights or something. These always get weird at the end. <laughs> Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. 
show, we truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)